Welcome to the Social Business Hangout Podcast, featuring Robert Levine, your social business mentor. This podcast was recorded in front of a live studio audience. Welcome, everybody, to the Social Business Hangout. We are in an undisclosed location tonight with one of the largest collections, probably the largest collection of video games uh, in Canada, if not uh, North America. And it's uh, quite uh, overwhelming, actually. Uh, the geek in me uh, is quite overwhelmed by all these wonderful games because I look at it and it's like, I played that, I wanted to play that. God, I hope I had that. And uh, we're rejoined today with Sid. The last time we had Sid uh, on the uh, on the podcast was when we were talking about the PC Museum. So this is the other side of the uh, the equation, the gaming side. So reintroduce yourself, Sid. Uh, I'm Sid Bolton. I'm the curator and founder of the Personal Computer Museum, and uh, I am Canada's top video game collector. No one has uh, stepped up to that. The CBC declared that I was that in 2010. So. So far, so good with that, and um, not that it's the title really matters, but it does actually get people's attention, which is good, and uh, I've actually found that using the video game collection has been a great way to promote the Personal Computer Museum, so uh, one of those things about you know business and trying to promote a business that I've found for myself personally is that sometimes, you know, I was always telling people how great the Computer Museum was and how wonderful what we were doing, etc., And that was all fine, except that all people wanted to ask me about was the video games. And uh, it wasn't always the case, but a a good amount of the time it was. So after a certain point of time, I decided that I would stop trying to go against the flow and decided to embrace the fact that people were interested in the games and then still continue to use that to promote the museum. So for those people who are interested in promoting their business and find that sometimes it seems like there's something else people are interested in and you're struggling and trying to steer them back to your business, maybe there's a different way to do it. And that's definitely what I did. And that's uh, worked out very, very well. Uh, a lot of times, you know, for example, we're, we're recording this right now uh, on top, not on, we're not on top of the Pac-Man <laughs> table, uh, Robert, thank goodness, but uh, the equipment is. And so we've got this Pac-Man table <clears throat> and it was actually... Interesting because the story of the Pac-Man table I used in such a way, people were interested in it, but I made sure that whoever promoted the story made sure that they put a link to the computer museum. So it said, you know, Sid Bolton from the computer museum. So they, you know, that's that's one case where sometimes you can use other things, whether it's skills or collections or items or stories uh, to help promote your your business, than not in the original way you intended. Yeah, and, and that's very much the concept around inbound marketing and stuff like that. Is is find what people are interested in, provide value. And I know you have gaming nights here as well, and, yeah. and you know the gaming nights obviously are interactive, and, and you're quite proud of the museum being an interactive uh, museum as well. Yeah. And uh, right down to your dog, who who's with us on the podcast. His name's Coleco. Yeah. You know, so so obviously the the gamer and you goes far back. So let's kind of do something similar to what we did with the PC conversation and start maybe with a historical view of it. Um, let's start kind of where pinball machines ended. <laughs> and, you know, there's a pinball gamer here and it, it's almost uh, it stands out because it, it's when when people think of video games nowadays, they think of the consoles. You know, and they think of I'm playing this on, on my home PC or on my uh, my TV at home. But you know, in the old arcade days, you know, maybe walk me through that for those that, that never experienced that evolution to where we are now. Well, the 
<clears throat> video game history actually goes back really, really far, farther, farther than you might think. But to sort of start where it, it makes sense to what we would call the modern video game, uh, there was something called computer space, which was actually developed on a million-dollar computer, and it was very, very complex. And people have to understand that computers have been used to play games pretty much since they've been around, right? People just they use computers to do business, but then there's always the entertainment value. So um, there was this great game called uh, you know, Computer Space, and uh, and basically, you know, it sort of was very complicated because you had ships and you had things moving around, and it was just it was great, but um, too complicated. And then this guy named Nolan Bushnell, who founded Atari, came along and he was, you know, I want to make a game like this, so he did. He put it in arcades. His nerdy friends at university found it interesting, but the average person found it too complex. Even So he was able to take this technology from a million-dollar computer and squish it down into a couple-thousand-dollar machine that was in a, it could be in an arcade. And remember, arcades existed. You know, A lot of us think of arcades as just a place where there were video game machines, but arcades themselves have existed for years and years and years with pinball machines and other things. So... One of the things that Nolan ended up doing when he had his own company was he asked one of his engineers to create a very simple product, uh, which ended up being Pong. And uh, so the engineer, you know, came up with something. He did the very basic thing that Nolan had asked him to do, which is basically a couple of paddles on the screen with a ball going back and forth. And by the way, you know, Nolan had just recently visited Ralph Baer over at Magnavox and found out that he had this very similar thing. And uh, it wasn't exactly the same, but it was close enough. And the engineer that, you know, did the first Pong, he also, he added what we call a little English to the ball, <laughs> you know, a little, made it a little bit more interesting, um, worked on varying the speed and stuff like that. Because originally the game was kind of boring. It didn't have, you know, when it was very predictable uh, originally and, and you couldn't do a lot. But then when he added that extra stuff, it suddenly became a lot of fun. And uh, they put the machine into a bar and uh, decided to see how people reacted to it. And they got a call uh, the second day saying that the machine had broken down. And they were very, you know, they couldn't understand. They had built this machine by hand, but they didn't think it was that, you know, vulnerable to being destroyed. And when they went there, they found out that the uh, <clears throat> milk carton that they were keeping the quarters in had overflowed. Mm. And the game wouldn't work anymore because it couldn't take any more quarters. So it hadn't necessarily broken down. People were using it just that much. <clears throat> so much that, yeah, they actually ended up having a problem with the machine. So um, that was really when video games became commercialized to a great degree. Uh, there was the Magnavox Odyssey, which was the first game console at home. It came out in 1972. It was uh, Ralph Bear had brought that out. 72 was also the year when Pong did show up in the arcade. So there was always this, you know, what's at home, what's in the arcade happening. But for many, many years, what was in the arcade was way better than what we had at home. And, uh, you know, in this room, uh, you can't see all of them, but, you know, there's the little tiny representations of arcade machines. And we were always looking in the 80s, early 80s especially, to take the arcade experience home because... You know, when you went to the arcade, you were you were playing the best of the best, the great hardware and everything. When you got home, if you were lucky enough to have an Atari 2600, you weren't kidding yourself that the games you had at home were as good as what you could play in the arcade, right? Well, there was also the other factor. You weren't necessarily just playing the game. You were playing against a community. So, that you know, this is pre-Xbox Live and, and PlayStation Network and all that. 
you know, when you were playing a game at home, the only high score you could potentially get would be your friends and family. When you were going into an arcade, like I knew people that would go to arcades out of their city just to to be able to get get on the get, on get a high score table. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and that that certainly was a big thing. You know, um, with uh, Space Invaders was actually the first game that would keep track of the high score and. You know, and it's true because in, in popular culture that carried forward. If anyone's you know watched Seinfeld and seen the Frogger episode, you know George is just so obsessed with you know the fact that his name has remained on the leaderboard this whole time, and uh, he has to take this machine home uh, in this condition and, and not you know kill the power to it in order to keep his high score alive. Because I mean, as much as those those things were there in games, um, scoring was not an original thing. If you look at the Odyssey, for example, the concept of a score uh, did not exist in the very first game that was out there. Of course, it did in Pong, uh, but much like tennis, um, with you know the relationship with the number 15, Pong only goes to 15, right? There's some very strange things when it comes to all that stuff. Things we really, really take for granted today. Um, you know, we had talked before about how the structure of games has changed. We... Um, we're not seeing uh, games that were designed to the arcade were designed to never really have an end. They were designed to get your quarter. They were not designed to give you any sort of satisfaction in accomplishing anything. So, you know, it's very different when we get home. We don't have to worry about quarters anymore. So, you know, suddenly things changed and now, you know, games are much more like movies in their structure. Um, and they're just, they're just completely different than they once were. And, uh, some people, I think, when people talk about the fact that they they miss the simplicity of of the old games, I think what they're really missing, or what they what they think they're missing, is that the fact that those games just they were continually challenging, but they were repetitively challenging, and never, for the most part, ever ever had an end. Yeah, you they know. just got progressively harder and harder and faster and faster. Yeah, and I mean, there was always that sense of getting to the next uh, level. Now, a game like Dragon's Lair did actually have an end, um, and it, so it was different in that respect, and, and it was one of the first first games to actually have an ending. Uh, it was also... Well, so it was truly a story in that sense. It was, and it was, uh, it was told in a um, sort of a non-linear fashion for the most part. It, you know, you would play different boards at different times, and eventually, though, you would get to the end screen, and then there would be a, an ending to it. Um, but it was also the first video game to ever feature um, orchestral music, because up to that point... Um, of course, the music in games was just a matter of, you know, a beeps and, and yeah. loops and whatever. So, um, you know, games have really, really changed in so many ways. But that, you know, the fundamental way they've changed, of course, is this move to a, a cinematic approach, more like a film. And, of course, because it's like that, uh, the formulas for films and the formulas for books tend to be, you know, a beginning, a middle and an end. And uh, it's it's really 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 changed, and not everyone's adjusted so well to that. So, you know, a lot of people don't like change, um, and I think that's why as well that a lot of people really like the nostalgic factor of going back and playing older games. Well, and there's something also to be said about you know in here you've got some actual arcade machines, and there's something to be said about playing something on a coin op. It's it's no different than a pinball machine. You, you know, playing a pinball machine where you could bounce it and tilt it and whatnot. Yeah. Um, you know the 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 idea of of playing something on a um, 
not a console, but a, um, a fabrication that is built for the purpose of you standing and, as you say, just throwing quarters in there. It's a completely different feel. Yeah, a perfect example of that is when you play the arcade game Tron. You know, Tron has this controller that has like a trigger on it, and it's a it's a very specially designed uh, joystick, and the, the cabinet actually glows just like Tron does, you know. So if you're a Tron fan, when you, you walk up to that machine, it's like you're being, you know, transported into the film. And because the film is about being transported into the computer, it makes the entire experience completely different. Yeah, sure, you can sit on your couch and pick up a wireless controller and turn the lights out and try to, you know, maybe have a drink or something and try to get yourself into that world. It's just not the same. Uh, it's just not. And that experience of touching... The controller and being able to kick the machine out of frustration, it's all part of the experience. So let's shift out uh, from the arcade and into the household because, uh, once again, most of the games uh, were either console games or PC games. Okay, and I know a lot of people are uh, purists, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like uh, I'm a console purist or I'm a PC purist. Let's maybe talk about the the difference because I know some people, they will only play with a mouse. Yeah. You know, and with their keyboard layout. And other people will only play with a controller or, you know, what was a joystick at the time. So your thoughts on the entire PC gamer versus console gamer? Well, you know... I I sort of watched the debate from afar thinking to myself, you know, uh, it's interesting how these these people are. I I, I sort of managed to remove myself somehow from the equation when I'm thinking about it, which is is good in one way, but bad in another. And I think about my own experience. And my own experience with video games, uh, other than the fact that I did have some early handhelds and I had... uh, I had a Coleco Telstar, which I hooked up to my TV at home, and black and white, and then I had the color one... Um, I spent most of my early gaming years attached to a computer. Um, Most of the early games that I spent any significant amount of time with were games on the Commodore 64. So those are, you know, those are technically PC games. Um, As computers evolved and I continued to play games on them, I never really fully got into playing PC games much. Although... The one game I did play, and I did actually, it's one of, if not the first game I finished, was a game called Loom. And Loom was from Lucasfilm, and it was an incredible game. It used uh, what's called the Scum Engine, which is a, uh, basically an engine for developing uh, arcade, or sorry, adventure games. Uh, and it really was amazing. It had really decent sound. I had just bought an actual MIDI card, so I was trying to take advantage of that extra sound and everything else. Um, and then, I don't know what happened to me. I, I Somewhere along the way, I just I quit playing games for a little while. And when I came back to it, and when I really, really got back into it in a big way, um, I was back on consoles, or, or starting out on consoles. Like, in some ways, like, growing up, I always wanted an Atari 2600, but couldn't afford one. So I had the VIC-20. You know, I had the cheapest, crappiest computer I could possibly find. Uh, it was color, and I made my own games, you know. Or, you know, I had very rudimentary games from uh, from Commodore, who <laughs> was not exactly the number one name in gaming. And um, so, I, I, again, I had sort of stuck in the early days with that uh, that PC stuff. But I had always been envious of the, you know, the guy that had the 2600, and I, I always wanted that. So when 
in my adult years when I had my own disposable income and I could go and buy something and someone offered me a 2600 I was like, yeah, I got to have that. And then my love for the console grew out of that. And then, you know, when eventually when I actually got offered, uh, you know, I kind of stayed out of a lot of the stuff for years. Didn't do a lot of gaming for a big chunk of my life, as I mentioned earlier. And then when the Xbox came out, I kind of jumped back in and someone offered me one very inexpensively. And I was like, holy crap, this is amazing now. I played uh, Crash Bandicoot, The Wrath of Cortex, finished that. And then I had to find out, you know, how this game, you know, what the origins of this game were, which turned out to be on the PlayStation 1. I skipped the PlayStation generation. Uh, anything I was doing, I was doing on Windows 95, and most of it was Star Trek games and, and stuff like that, because I was also interested in the TV series at the time. And um, and then, yeah, and then I kind of just, once I was on the PlayStation and played that, and then when I went to the PlayStation 2, I just kind of stuck with that. And I don't really do, other than games I have to review uh, for sites that I write for, I pretty much stay away from the PC gaming stuff. I know, I think it's the type of gamer you are. If you're you know a real-time strategy person, there's no better way to do it than with a mouse. I'm sorry. You know, yeah, they can try to bring it to the console and simulate the experience and whatever, but there's nothing as you know efficient in terms of a user interface than using a mouse and using a keyboard. Um, for those people that are stuck on the mouse and the keyboard combo for uh, the first-person shooter, I say do whatever you got to do. I mean, I don't, I personally don't agree with it, but that's because I've gotten used to playing FPSs with a controller. Um, I think I'd be, and I wouldn't say I'd be lost using the keyboard and mouse, but uh, like Doom came out a long time ago. You know, we've changed things since then. You know, controllers have pretty good. Uh, control mechanisms for those games. So, but really, what it boils down to is whatever way you want to play. You know, whatever's best for you. I mean, PC gamers still have the advantage of being able to move ahead in terms of graphics and, and everything else. You know, we've seen the Xbox 360 pump out some incredible stuff, but it's getting a little long in the tooth now compared to everything else that's out there. So, you know, what's going to happen? Well, we know what's going to happen. We're going to get another console, and the consoles are going to leap ahead again of everything else for a period of time and then they'll start to lag again it's it's a cycle that we've gotten ourselves into and we seem to keep going back to it yeah and i know for myself it was very similar i missed out on the entire pc because very much like you were saying i was a windows gamer for the longest time and it was uh, the xbox near the end of its life cycle because that's when i could afford it uh that i got into it and that shift from going from mouse you know, because it was mostly first-person shooters as well, was a transition. But fundamentally, what really did it for me was I was getting tired of constantly having to upgrade my, my PC. You know, it's like the amount of video cards that I have in a box at home that were bought just because I needed to get the latest graphic or, or the ambient lighting or whatever, it just got repetitive. Whereas when you take a look at how many titles and you know we're looking around here you know you got your xbox wall you got your your playstation wall the sheer amount of titles over an amount of years on one console that you know has gotten firmware upgrades and, and software updates but the hardware specs with the exception of maybe a, a new fan a, a variation on that but the base spec hasn't really changed and i think that has made consoles very attractive to people because now you're spending money on the games themselves and on the experience and on the downloadable content as opposed to the hardware and constantly running into that uh, hardware gamble. 
Well, and it, it's made games more accessible to everybody because, yeah, not everyone's a tweaker, you know, and, and a player like to mess around with their machine. Like, But then there are people that do like that, right? So um, for those listeners that struggled with trying to get your memory management working on your 386 and your 486 and your your high memory and, and everything else uh, and your conventional memory, you know what I'm talking about here. Um, and then making sure you didn't have IRQ conflicts with your Sound Blaster, like telling you 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 it was almost a game to get a game to work very much like, so. it, it, and you know and you were almost you're very proud of yourself when when you got done but you were tired you know whereas now you can just kind of focus on on just playing the game if you've got a console and you don't have to worry about all that stuff and that's that's really what you know consoles have brought to us in terms of being able to play games it's really about the games it's not about you know messing around and trying to have the the latest hardware to to be able to actually do it because but at the same time, the other advantage, you know, you have to really consider is that video games actually drive computers in terms of uh, their power for the most part. You know, if you look at, you know, what does Intel do when they want to showcase their latest hardware? They show the latest game running on it. They've released it to game developers because the game developers are the people that push the hardware to its limits, and that's what they you know want to do. I mean... Really, like, how much power can you pump out using a word processor? Mm-hmm. You know, nothing. You don't need the power, right? Yet, that's what the majority of us do with a computer. Your web browser really doesn't use that much horsepower. But, you know, the latest version of Halo will certainly, you know, test your machines. So, um, you know, games have been important to the PC world just strictly, in my opinion, on that basis, is the fact they drive... Uh, computer technology forward. Well, just as you say, the sound cards, the video cards alone, the evolution of that, forget about the actual uh, graphic CPU and, and the CPU proper. So I want to shift now to variations of games because I think that's there's an appeal for everybody, you know, from the old days of Pongs, but there, there's classifications, if you will. So I'd like to, to hear your thoughts on why the diversity in games and well, what those might be. Do you mean in terms of genres? Yeah, like, so you got your, your uh, as you said, there's the first-person shooter. Yep. There's the strategic, right? Yep. So along those lines. Well, um, you know, I think every gamer has their sort of their favorite genre. And I think we've seen that, that I mean, the downside is, is there's nothing worse than being in a genre that gets tossed aside, right? If you're a gamer, for example, if you're if you were someone that likes adventure games, Now's not a good time to be alive in terms of games because, you know, a lot of those original adventure games that were a little bit more slow-paced and whatnot, they're just not making them anymore. And they're certainly not making them for the the mainstream consoles, but there are a few of them being made for PCs. So here's a case where you might say, hey, I'm going to switch from playing my games on a console to go back and playing on a PC. That's that's one situation. Um if you're into puzzle games, you're pretty much okay because they're still popular. Um, you know, nothing's happened to Tetris. You can still buy it 75 different ways at any one given time. Um, I believe my microwave actually runs Tetris um, while you're cooking your food. Uh, like, seriously. <laughs> Why anything, does that not surprise me? Anything that has a CPU can run Tetris yeah. pretty much, right? If it, if it has more than four lines, big pixels, you can put Tetris on it. Um, and they do. That's the other thing, too. It's not just that they can, but they do. Dragon's Lair is guilty of the same thing. Um, but, um, 
it's it's frustrating, as I said, because for me, for example, I like the action platform. That's the genre that that I like. And and what's really sucked is that some of the best action platformers that have been developed over the years, Crash Bandicoot, uh, Ratchet and Clank, um, Sly Cooper. You know, a lot of these are Sony ones, but they've just been amazing, amazing games. The problem is the developers, Jack and Daxter is another one even from the same developers of Crash Bandicoot. The developers have grown up. They don't want to do the same games anymore. So they're making more mature games, and they're making their games look more like the other first-person shooters out there because the younger people, that's what they're buying. That's what they're interested in. So I don't necessarily want that kind of game. Uh, It's not my favorite genre for sure, um, but I'm having a hard time being able to find the kinds of games that I I used to like, and I'm finding that I'm not evolving necessarily as a gamer to the point where I'm suddenly in love with a different genre. So it can be frustrating as a gamer if you're, especially if you're an older gamer like me. I'm not that old, but I'm old enough. Um, and uh, you know, it's just I don't know. And it, the problem is, is that all these genres that are out there, some of them are being mashed up. You know, we're seeing franchises mixed together you know dogs and cats living together mass hysteria i know it's a ghostbusters quote but still it's true like you're seeing you know angry birds is suddenly you know making out with star wars like what is that all about it's all about money right Mm -hmm. and that's that's the thing so um what's great about genres is that they define what games are we can categorize them we can understand how they work so that when you walk into a game you know what to expect the downside is is that it's great if your favorite genre is the best-selling genre. If it's not, you may be disappointed. But I think that's also where the, the power of it, like, once again, now how many titles are, are, are we surrounded by? Well, there's 14,000 in the collection. There's probably about 9,000 9 to 10,000 in these in, in the secret layer. Right. So when you think about it, you know, anybody that wants to go back in time or whatnot, these things are available, you know, for the most part, like they're getting harder and harder to find. But, you know, you can pull up an old PS2 console and revisit a lot of those things quite easily. Yes, until you've played all the games and you don't want to play them again. <laughs> yeah, that's a um, and then the, and that brings up the other point, which is the shift in games towards you know completely downloadable, uh, no media. I mean, for someone like me, that's just a, that's just the scariest thought that anyone could ever come up with. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not that I'm against downloading. I realize that it's it's better in ways for the environment. It's more convenient. You don't have to go to your favorite game store. You don't have to wait in line. Although that's part of the fun, don't forget that, kids at home. Um, but the problem is, is that when so and so shuts off the server where you downloaded this game in ten years, you're not thinking about it today because you just want to play the game today. But if you want to go back in ten years, good luck mm-hmm. because does your hard drive still work in your console? Right, these things are not infallible. Um, is the download service still available? I mean. We'd love to think that big companies like, you know, Microsoft and, and Sony and, and Nintendo are going to be around forever. Uh, Nintendo has already been around forever, so that's that's not such a concern. But, you know, look at big companies that are suddenly gone. Look at someone like Kodak. Like, who would expect a big company like Kodak to suddenly be, you know, pulled apart and destroyed? Um If that happens to any of these game companies today in 10, 20, 30 years from now, which could, 
what are you going to do? How are you going to play those old games? Some people would say, I don't want to play those old games, but for me, you know, the games that are new today, they'll be fun to play hopefully in 10 or 20 years. So, yeah. And they're history, right? And if you don't have anything tangible, then what are you supposed to do? I, I, I've heard this said as well about, you know, downloadable movies, uh, e-books and whatnot, uh, you know, um, like the concept of a book. You can buy a book 50 years ago put it on a, a shelf and still pull it up a hundred years from now, whereas right. how many variations of an e-reader uh, would you have gone through in that 50 years? So there's something to be said about uh, insert A into slot B type yeah. of thing. Yeah, and it's just, uh, it's a whole other discussion, but it's um, it's a valid one. It's it's And so fortunately, it's part of the evolution of games. And I, I'm glad to see that so far, uh, any attempts to actually completely switch stuff to downloadable haven't been that successful. Uh, because there's right now there's enough people like me out there that that refuse. I don't refuse to buy downloadable games, but um, when given the choice, I will always buy the tangible item. Now, there's also the aspect of downloadable content as well. You know, like um, to your point, uh, the midnight release of Black Ops Two. I waited in in line for a bit because I'm not that young anymore, so I don't have to do the the eight hour wait whatnot. Um, but as soon as I put it in, there was a downloadable content. So you were able to, you know, release the game to print well uh, and then still run QA against it. And then, you know, literally the second you pop it in, it's already getting an update. Right. But more importantly, all these games with their new maps and their downloadable elements, it keeps the shelf life of a game going much longer than, um, as you say, once you finish the game, what now? Like yeah. in the old days, you might not be able to finish the game because there was no end. Now there is pretty much all of them have yep. a end. Yeah, beginning, middle, and end. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, there's no doubt that uh, downloadable content has become a big – it's a business. It's a, it's a strategic thing. I mean, it's, it's used a lot of times by these game manufacturers to uh, promote the product. So, you know, you, they've made a deal with this company where this game's going to have exclusive content on the PlayStation for a certain period of time and then – vice versa the xbox has exclusive content um and it's all great and it's all fine and i and i think you know the downloadable content that part of it i can live with because it's not the core game it's just an add-on so if it's not available in 10 years that's okay but what i love when they do like you know for example uh you know rockstar has been in the news lately talking about you know grand theft auto 5 uh, what they did with a lot of their downloadable content is they put several of the downloadable content packs that were for Grand Theft Auto 4 on a disc and sold that disc. I bought it because mm-hmm. I didn't want to have to worry about the download. Yeah, well, it's the same thing. You know, we were talking about this with Fallout. You know, I, I'm definitely going to be picking up Fallout 3, and I'm looking for the Ultimate Edition because it's got like four downloadable packs on it. Yeah. You know, uh, so I want to end with one one question though because. One of the things, and we've talked a bit about this before, that we hear a lot about in the enterprise now is the concept of gamification or game theory and game dynamics. And a lot of that is taking what we've learned from the gaming world and applying it to HR systems, billing systems, enterprise-level systems. What are some of those things, you know, like achievements and badges and stuff like that have been around forever? I always joke saying the military has had badges and, and achievements for longer than anything else. When we think of gaming concepts like leaderboards and, and leveling up and, and all that stuff, what are your thoughts on what an enterprise or an enterprise system? Because you're also an IT guy, so you'll yeah. understand this from a, from a code side as well. What, now that we're monitoring all this data, 
It's all about rewarding and prompting behavior, and that's what games have always been. We want someone to go through, whether or not it's a story or a maze or whatever. Your thoughts? Well, I think um, using sort of a gaming model to keep employees engaged um, is one great thing to look at and how um, I think the concept and structure of games can definitely be applied in the enterprise in a number of ways. Uh, as you mentioned, one of the, the things about you know video games that makes people keep coming back is the, re- the reward system, right? And, and how, how we figure out what is a good way to reward somebody um, when they do something, right? And, and that concept's been around for a long time, and it's used in different ways. Um, the other thing is, is that really people, if you look at psychologically how people react to games, I don't know if you, I don't know if you remember, were you a Star Trek Next Generation fan? Mm-hmm. Okay. So you remember the one where there's the mind control thing and Riker's looking into that mm-hmm. spirally thing and then all of a sudden it's like, ooh, it's like they're getting a hit from, it's like yep. a drug, right? And they're addicted to this game and then ultimately they're brainwashed. So I'm going to let all the business owners out here know how to brainwash their employees. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but if you take that, you know, thought process and how that worked in that episode, it's it's true of how games would work, whereas there's sort of a, this, this rush that you get um, in certain aspects. And games do that. That's why games are successful. Uh, games have the element of competition uh, in them, so things like leaderboards are there. People want to always want to hear that they're better than somebody else or that they've achieved something or they've done something. Um, so that is good. I mean, look at how well Xbox has done with the achievements um, versus, you know, and I know you can say from a, a 30,000 foot level that the that the trophies that the PlayStation have are the no same comparison. Thing, no but there comparison. Is no, comparison, no achievements right? far outweigh trophies. On right. The PS3. And, and it's just the way it's been implemented, the fact that there's actually this gamer score and everything else, that all it's just better, right? It's a better implementation of the, you know, a, a gamification process, if you want to want to call it that. Um, and I think that uh, there's a lot we can learn from games everywhere. And I think, you know, sort of to tie this back to the computer museum and everything else, it's just remember that the multi-million dollar machines that we built that were designed to improve business efficiency were built by companies like IBM, whose primary focus was business, have been, will be, and are really good at playing games. And there's a reason for that. And I think business needs to stop ignoring that at times and really embrace it. I agree. Okay, we're at the mark. Reintroduce yourself. Sid Bolton from the Personal Computer Museum and Canada's top video game collector. Very much so. And I'm Robert Levine, your social business mentor. Thank you, everybody. (laughs) 